previously on Storyological. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, right. The other day you said something smart. That seems likely. You, something, something about the way we interact with the stories, the way we talk about stories, the way we... Uh, yeah, what we seek from stories. Joseph Allen Hill said something very kind about the podcast on Twitter the other day. He said that it had more emotional reactions than other literary discussion and that he liked that. And I saw that and I thought, well, what else is there? That's always the perspective I come from. And I guess that that isn't where everybody who discusses stories comes from. You know, people, someone like you has an MFA or, you know, people who've studied literature theories and critical theories. It may, you know, it may become much more about that rather than the personal subjective experience of reading. You know, I'm not one of those uh, people who have studied English literature, who've got an MFA or even at A-level at it. And I don't know all of the deconstructionist theories about a Marxist reading. So yeah, that's the truth. You read stories to unlock the world and I read them to unlock myself. You're right. Like there are two schools. There's the emotional engagement school and the what does Marx think of this if he was not dead and was me and was thinking about it in the current contemporary landscape. It's a different thing. It's a different thing than... Uh, I never found another way to get joy out of analyzing something without first experiencing my emotions of it and then analyzing those emotions in context of the story. And then hopefully, like what I was telling you the other night that I am, I am addicted to is the high of some clicking where there's a feeling of an understanding of something that exists outside of me and maybe exists outside of the story in some third place. But but probably it's just in the story that is in me. But in any case, there's a rush, a feeling like of an understanding that is partly why I'm doing this newsletter for our Patreon people, $3 a month. Get on that. It's out now. Actually, it's not out now, but you can subscribe to it right now. Uh, it's it, will because... be. it will be by the time this podcast comes out. Oh, yeah, out. yeah, it is, it is out now. Time. Uh, hashtag why me. This is Storylogical, a podcast about amazing stories. That we kind of like. I'm Chris Camerud. And I'm E.G. Kosh. My pick for this week is The Woman Who Lived in a Restaurant by Leonie Ross. It was in Barcelona Review. That is where I found it. You can go and read it online. The link, of course, will be in the show notes. I am really in a beginning mood today. I'm going to read you the beginning of this story before I summarize it. Excellent. One high day in February, a woman walks into a two-tier restaurant in a corner of her busy neighborhood, sits down at the worst table, the one with the blind spot a few feet too close to the kitchen swinging door, and stays there. She stays there forever. She wears a crisp cotton white shirt with a good collar and cuffs and a soft black skirt that can be hiked up easy. She has careful dreadlocks strung with silver beads, the best hairstyle to take into forever. There is no more jewelry, her skin is naked and moist. She keeps a tiny pair of white socks in her handbag, and in the cold months, she slips them onto her bare feet. So, this is a story of love, and as such, one of the things that I get from rereading that first passage is how it is a story of forever told in the present tense, which I think is not a bad approximation of what it feels like to fall in love, where it feels like you're living in this timeless forever space, and yet everything is happening right now, and everything is happening for perhaps the first time. And what really drew me to the story is how 
the woman at the center of the story, the love at the center of the story, they both become, in a way, figures of horror and wonder. The woman's lips remind a male waiter of the entrails of a plum, so juicy and broken open. Her presence is so alive in the place, and sometimes waiters find her masturbating there, that it completely upends their world views. They become obsessed with her. One in particular becomes obsessed with her and wants to rip her out of the restaurant to save her from that place. But the thing is, she is there, and she's not going anywhere, and she's in love with the chef. But the thing about the chef is he's also in love with the restaurant, maybe more than he's in love with her. And the restaurant is in love with him. Yeah, and the restaurant is in love with him. But he's also definitely in love with the woman. Their first meeting is described by the maitre d', and he describes the chef upon meeting her as thinking there is something missing from his life and that he wants something from her. And the waiter gets really upset, for some reason, with this description, as people get upset with love sometimes. He's like, why is that woman sitting there for so long? Why does she wait? And the maitre d' says, you understand nothing. You should wait for the rest of the story. And so we go on waiting and wondering about how love can be what it is. I love that you started with a beginning because amongst the things that I enjoyed about this story was the way it so neatly wrapped up its conceit in that opening paragraph. You know, the woman that comes in and sits in the sits in the restaurant and she stays there forever. And it got me thinking about the way short stories work in their structure and how long is a short story or what is the arc that a short story can tell and of course there are many ways of doing it but one of my favorites is what she has done or what Leone has done here she opens with a conceit and the story is finished when the forever that she mentions is over and that is when the woman eventually dies and is transmuted into a dining chair at the restaurant and it got me thinking about other stories that do that so like Neil Gaiman's chivalry opens with the line Mrs Whittaker found the holy grail it was under a fur coat and the story ends when a Mrs Whittaker has got rid of the holy grail and b she's had a chance to acquire a magic lamp and thinks "Uh uh-uh this is a bad idea and now she knows better um, or the bog girl that we talked about, I don't remember if it was last year or the year before, that starts with the young turf cutter falling in love with a bog girl and it ends when the bog girl slips back beneath the surface. And I just, it, something about this story unlocked that idea that Holly Black talked to us about, like the end of a story is always seeded in its beginnings and it really made it concrete for me in a way that I think will have a big influence on my own writing. Yeah, it's really good. I'm really in love with it. And I'm glad that it that it has meant something to you. It is so assured in its construction that I think that assurance either gives gives them a rocket boost or, or it's just part of the assurance is it can get to this complicated thing the way that when you describe the end of this woman being transmuted into a dining chair, that is... On the surface, if you just tell somebody this is a story about a woman who sat at a restaurant until she turned into a chair, (laughs) there's a body horror aspect to it. And that is sown throughout the story, a kind of horror. The, The chef is really torn by the fact that he's in love with his work and he's in love with this woman. And he doesn't really want her to wait, Mm -hmm. but he respects her choice ultimately because he also loves her. The, the maitre d' 
he doesn't know what to do. He just wanders around as a smiling maniac, apparently, <laughs> just telling everyone, smile, smile, ignore the lady over there with the bare feet. Yeah, everything's uh, fine. Yeah. And the, 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 the one waiter who becomes obsessed with her and wants uh, to drag her away, he becomes a version of a horrible creature himself because kind of like the guy at the end of Cat Person, he just gets reduced to referring to this woman in the restaurant as a, as a bitch. And he refers to his boss as a cruel bastard. He can't see anything but the horror in mm-hmm. the story. And I love that what le- that left me with, it, it feels like to get back to that idea of a truth in the world is the way that love makes monsters of us all. But what monsters? What glorious monsters? Yeah. Yeah, I, it's funny, you know, All I really enjoyed the story. All of my thoughts about it are, are structural because I'm just so in awe. So there's the beginnings thing, the beginning and ending thing. And then there's the second decision that she made to tell the story through the majority of which through the eyes of the waitstaff at the restaurant so partly the waiter that gets obsessed with her and partly the maitre d and the fact that she tells it through those points of view adds so much drama and intrigue to it because if we just were maybe in her point of view it would seem maybe a little insipid or lacking in drama but to see it through their perspective and how how her patience and diligence and dedication enrages some of those people around her. It's, it's, it says so much more about dynamics because then you have, you know, a person, an individual on their own is less interesting to tell a story about than the, the link that, or the relationship that links them to somebody else. So her link to the chef is interesting but the when you when you link her to the mater d and to the waiter as well you suddenly have these dynamics that play off each other and can um be in conflict i guess essentially yeah that point of view that that choice that inspiration uh is spectacular it, in the fellowship of the ring there is a moment where gandalf admonishes frodo regarding gollum to not be so quick to deal out death and judgment. Um, and it's something I think of often as a writer and a reader and as a person who wants to make of their life something of writing and reading and connecting to other people. Uh, because it's like like Murakami said, a writer should withhold judgment for as long as possible, possibly forever. And while this isn't maybe the best advice from Gandalf or Murakami for people who are activists, for people who want to act in the world mm-hmm. sometimes... Um, it does strike me as pretty good advice for a reader and a writer and a husband and as a friend. And I love how the point of view of the story, the way it's constructed, it really gives you only a glimpse of the nature of the love between the woman and the chef at the end, because that's when it pulls back from the maitre d's point of view. And you see the woman and the chef in the kitchen and you share a moment where you oh, get a sense. Oh, and it's so sexy. Oh, it is. Yeah, it is super sexy. And yet before that, through the other points of view, we are presented with all the evidence we need to judge the failure of their love. It it does strike one as crazy. Like right. you're just living in a restaurant waiting for this guy who's not going to leave. Also, the restaurant doesn't like you. <laughs> yes. That moment at the end where we see them share a kiss and it is so deeply beautiful and moving and sexy. It only carries the weight it does because 
Leone has spent the rest of the story essentially telling us why it's such a bad idea that this woman waits there forever. And that, you know, we talk, I talked about structure, where the story starts, okay, where it ends is the end of forever. And the only thing that she has to do in the middle is make us understand why she's waiting. And she does that by having this argument, by setting up this argument, by by putting all the reasons why it's terrible and hard in the mouths of the people around her and then giving us this one moment of beauty and connection that we finally understand and think, yeah, maybe I would wait too in those circumstances. Yeah. Uh, I think that might be a good point to end on, but I'll add the last thought I had, which was, you know, last time I read a really extended chunk of In the Airplane Over the Sea, the song that ends <laughs> with the line, how strange it is to be anything at all. Uh, you know, you're connecting with the structure of it, and it is a perfect structure, and I think the structure is one that I I also adore greatly, and yet everything that's rattling around in my chest right now is just the experience of love of how strange it is i think i was i was really taken with the the tidiness of the conceit and the way it could engulf all of these contradictions you know the paradox of being a person in love of being at one lost inside of that love and also somehow found and i think you know as much as it is a, it is a strange thing to be anything at all it is an especially strange thing to be something in love with something else. It is. My pick this week is The Daughters of the Late Colonel by Catherine Mansfield, published in 1920. Were any of our relatives alive in 1920? I mean, the dead ones. Probably a few of the dead ones. <laughs> My mum was born in 35. Okay. My dad, granddad was born when Queen Victoria was still on the throne. Well, that was a long time period. That doesn't really narrow it down. That's 70 years of history, right? Right, but it means he was born before the turn of the century. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, my mom's dad was not born before the turn of the century. He was born, I think, in 1922. And this is relevant because this story is all about how those kind of Victorian values can be handed down uh, through the generations. It's a comedy of manners. It's a story about two sisters who are living in the aftermath of their father's death and who haven't yet really grappled with what that means for them and how to move on from it, and he's still very much there with them. The reason I said that you know, it was important that my grandfather was born in Victorian times is because this story is concerned with how these sisters are so cut off from their own emotion, but because they, they're they more concerned with the should and the ought and the customs that surround death in their class, in their, in their society at this time of living. And it's also restrained and it's all about the perception of what they should be doing instead of about the reality of the emotions that they're experiencing. That time period, the 20s, the Victorian times, somehow feels very close to me and my family. I can feel it echoing down the generations. So this was funny, but also deeply uncomfortable to, to feel that, that how castrated they are by expectations. This, I, I mean, I appreciate that you once told me that you did not realize Jane Austen was writing things that were meant to be funny. When I read... This story, I do not think 
funny. I, there are funny things, but I did not encounter it as much as a as a comedy. Yes. But I love that you did because it means that whatever you found at one point difficult to imagine funny uh, in people being constrained by either society or parental expectation. I'm I'm over that now, sort of. I want to start at the beginning because it's a very fine place to start. The beginning of the story goes like this. The week after was one of the busiest weeks of their lives. Awesome. Simple sentence. But what I, what you notice, what I notice, is that so many of the sections begin more or less in a similar kind of manner. Uh, the next section begins, another thing which complicated matters. Another section begins, father would never forgive them. Uh, what I notice about all of these sections, the week after, another thing, father would never forgive them, it's all bringing us into a moment not strictly in media res, it is in media res, the idea of starting in the middle of something that's already happening. But what I get out of that is a, is a sense of always arriving after the fact, always arriving too late, always arriving after things have already happened and which you maybe haven't, haven't really come to grips with yet. And it was so perfect for this story. It was, you know, you were reading it as a, these sisters being disconnected from the reality of their emotions, being absorbed in the expectations of society. And for me, it was particularly the feeling, not about society, but that they had lived their lives on the schedule of someone else. They'd lived their lives in the time of their father's time, what his expectations were for them. They, their needs were overtaken by his needs. His needs became their needs. They defined themselves for so long by taking care of him that now that he's dead, there's this there's this weight pulling through the story that's not spoken for a long time, which is, we've done this for so long for someone else. Is it too late for us? Yeah, the scenes that were most emotionally engaging to me were the ones that dealt directly with the father, either in situation, you know, in the present tense. That scene where they go into his bedroom for the first time since he died, the room where he had been sick and been nursed, and he's this very physical presence. They talk, at least to themselves. I don't know that they ever say it out loud, but is he, he is in the drawers. Is he in this drawer? Is He is in the wardrobe. He is this presence that lives in that space. They don't open the blind for fear of disturbing him. Not his spirit, but him. You know, when the when the organ player starts up outside, they think they have to rush down and pay him off because that's what they've done for so many years so that he wasn't disturbed. And I think without that scene, the story could have floated away, could have been too light. But with that, that really anchors it in some dark, haunting, almost gothic type emotions. Yeah, yeah, the, the, the for not a ghost story, this is such a ghost story. The father really is almost as alive in the story as the ant is in Sea Oak. There's so much that for so long isn't said that this is a kind of ghost story that is just a ghost story that cannot speak its own name. You know, they can't really say that they're haunted. They can't really be haunted. That's not what this story is allowed to be. And I thought a lot about how when my grandfather died, my mom's father, there was a moment after the funeral where my grandfather, who had been a very particular man, who had very particular sets of needs that people ended up uh, helping him with, as my mom did, uh, one of the things was that no alcohol was allowed in the house because at one time it had not worked out, there being alcohol in the house. Right, so and there we were after the funeral. I remember we were in the, the dining room table and we had brought 
a bottle of wine, which my mom was torn between feeling so ecstatic that after you know, her parents had failed in their uh, travails with alcohol and so decided we can't have it anymore, she was so excited to see it. And at the same time, you know, there was still the voice of granddaddy, alcohol is bad and you will get addicted to it and things will go horribly wrong. Uh, and I'm not allowed to be happy that he's dead. And the happiness that is attached to this thing is getting attached to him being dead. And that is something that is definitely in me as a memory, but also seemed a part of what was happening in the story. The thing that seizes them when that guy is playing music outside, that they have to stop the music or their dad will get upset, feels married with the fact that that's the moment they start to think about themselves and think about that, you know, the music makes them happy. Why can't they enjoy it? Right, and then, you know, when they decide not to clear out his room, they they say, it's okay to be weak, isn't it? Just this once. And it's like they they approach the idea with such trepidation because they're facing the brick wall of his disapproval. And they they decide, you know, maybe they'll just take one brick off it today uh, and that'll be enough. And they won't need to dismantle it all immediately in that beginning that I read the first sentence of you know they don't mention that their dad's dead for a long time and it struck me that as a student in high school it is not unlikely that your reaction might be I don't why why is she tricking why is she just not saying that their dad's dead why isn't there just straight up Kurt Vonnegut and be like dad died a week ago and it's been hard um but but of course you don't. Yeah, they, they can't even say that themselves. Uh, there's so many scenes where the sisters struggle to come to life, to, to say what they want, like to the cook, maid, person, Katie. And there are also a lot of ellipses in this story, which I remember deploying a lot in my younger days too. Uh, even, I even writing a sentence where I describe these clouds as being these ellipses that drifted off into an unspoken thought. And my writing teacher was like, no. <laughs> No, uh, for many reasons, but the most obvious reason is that a thought is always unspoken. Once you speak it, it's not a thought anymore. And I thought, ah, that's kind of, okay, whatever. Uh, and it all builds in, in, the, in the final scene after the music is playing. It's like the ellipses vanish, and there's, in a story of, of so much repression, uh, so much uh, hilarious difficulty, uh, there's that brief moment where they start to come alive and they're thinking about themselves. They're thinking about what's happened to them. Both of the sisters are remembering moments from their past. Uh, Josephine is remembering if mother had lived, maybe things had been different. And Costantia is staring at a Buddha and <laughs> thinking about uh, how she used to spend nights while their their dad was alive she would go and find time and space for herself and lie down on the floor in her nightgown and stare at the moon and both of their passages which are separate from each other which i love kind of echoes the feeling that it, it seems like together they have conspired to trap themselves whereas if either one of them were alone they could have escaped could have become something both of their passages separately arrive at the same question of but now but now now you know, there's, there's full of so much, there's so much regret in this story. And regret always takes you to the question of, well, now what? I had one more thing that I wanted to say 
about this story, which is how our parents are the lens through which we see the world, you know, through their presence, through their absence, through who they are, they become, let's say, a stained glass window that colors our view of the world. And this story and that scene in the bedroom uh, demonstrates it so beautifully and so clearly. There's this lyric from a song by The National that goes, I am secretly in love with everyone I grew up with. And there was a moment when I was around 21 uh, when a girl that I had secretly loved and grew up with and who I was friends with, uh, she died in a car accident. And I spent several hours listening to OK Computer on repeat and writing and trying to come to terms with the selfishness of my grief, of my loss, of my sense that I had lost not just a person from the world, but any and every possibility that had ever or would ever or did exist between us. There was a sense, like, in this story, like their father can never forgive them. That is a, a selfishness of his death. Like, they can never get anything from him that they wanted. And it was a similar feeling with me and this friend. There would, as unlikely as it was, there was now an end to all possibility. And to sit with a regret, you, you kind of end up, with these two doors you can go through. And one uh, is to forget it in one way or another, to, to bury it, to perhaps release yourself from that regret. And there's another way where you can try to muster your regret into a promise you make to the reality of now. And in the story, they reach the question of now, but I'm not sure they reach the promise of it. I think there's a third door as well. I think there is a door that leads you back to the beginning back to reliving all of the choices that you made and wishing that you'd made them differently and those are the the people that go through that door are the ones that get in this permanent cycle of anger and depression because because of how regret controls their lives yeah yeah yeah. that's true yeah that's that's when you get haunted mm. like the repression turns you perhaps into a monster <laughs> uh your door turns you into a haunted person um, and clearly the the middle door is the one with the car behind it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Sure is. Okay. Thanks for listening, readers. We have, as forever and always, failed to discuss all of the stories that exist in the universe or said even one half of 1% of all the <laughs> things that could have been said about the stories that we did choose. So if you would like to tell us your opinions or recommend stories for future discussion, you can find us on Twitter. We are at Storylogical. Which is story. Like the word. Oh. Like the letter. And logical. Like Aristotle. You can follow Emma on Twitter. She is at egkosh. And you can follow Chris on Twitter. He is at Kuvols. Uh, if you would like to support us in our mission of talking about stories and whatever else comes into our mind about our own lives and the world and the structures of art, uh, you can visit our Patreon page, which we've started at patreon.com slash storylogical. If you subscribe at the $3 amount, then you too can receive Chris's newsletter every month where he reviews pretty much everything in the world. And if you are not monetarily inclined, but you would still want to support us, you can find us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find our podcast and leave us a review. And that helps other people find us. Of course, for show notes, links to past episodes, 
including various interviews with wonderful writers. Most recently, we interviewed Yukumi Ogawa, and that is up there on the website. If you haven't checked it out, you should. Uh, also, gifts of an appropriate and inappropriate nature. Uh, everything in the world that has to do with us that we have put on the internet all exists at our home on the web. <laughs> Storylogical.com. Thanks for listening. Happy reading. Well, you know what they say, you can't save the world without saving yourself. Is that, is that a, they, a thing that they say? Yeah, yeah, they. Um, I mean, a lot of, again, see, this is a reversal. Uh, you read stories to find out about yourself. Some people, when they say they, they mean people out there. I mean the people in my head. <laughs> this is the thing they say, people in my head. You can't save the world without saving yourself. And we stop in that.